That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. I'm here today with Jerry Inzarillo, the Group Chief Executive Officer of Daria Gate Development Authority. We're sitting in his office here in Daria, my son Noah and I, and we have a lot to talk about. Here we go. Well, today I'm delighted to be at Daria. Daria um, is just this unbelievable project, and I'm here with Jerry Inzarillo, the Chief Executive Officer. And Jerry, before we start, I was... Uh, I was blown away by the presentation that I saw the other day. You know, I, I read about the project. I was privileged to hear about the project from the Crown Prince, Prince Mohammed, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but there's nothing like seeing it in person. Um, before we start with the project, though, I want to talk about you. So last year, Hotels Magazine named you Corporate Hotel, Hotelier of the World. They described you as energetic and enthusiastic, always with a beaming smile, I think that's like an underrated statement or description about you. Tell me about yourself and how you got here. Well, thank you. And, f- and first of all, to have a chance to sit with you, someone I greatly admire, a fellow New Yorker, a good soul, someone who's taken your accomplishments and synthesized it into uh, ambassadorial work to get a common denominator for everybody. Uh, my, uh, my congratulations and my gratitude to you for that. Um, my wife, who is a very prominent uh, journalist, uh, doesn't like when uh, someone will approach me and say, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, I'm a kid that cleans tables. Uh, no, you're not a busboy from Brooklyn anymore, right? Um, you have to stop saying that. Well, the reason why I say it is because I'm proud, because that's where I originated from. And even cleaning tables, you got to serve people, and in your service of them, um, you were the recipient of affection or money or tips or different things like that. But you got to see people together, and that, that formed what's now 55 years of a legacy to do that all over the world ambassadorially. So... Um, you know, I, uh, I come from a very poor background, but very good people uh, who had a struggle through life to, to get through life. But we got to the other side of it, and we've been very fortunate. And now all the work is dedicated to inspire young people in something I've devoted my whole life to, which is how do we create joy and festivity? I've gotten to know the kingdom and the region very well since 2017. And some countries in the region have developed tourism for a long time now. 
and the kingdom had not necessarily been known as a place for tourism until recently. But uh, it is a big part of Vision 2030. Tell us why they're aiming to have the kingdom as a hotspot for tourism and where you see this going. Yeah, the, I'm particularly pleased about this, and this is the reason why I'm here. Um, I, we're very lucky at this point in time historically to have a very empathetic, benevolent uh, king. Uh, the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Salman, is uh, a historian, uh, a very good man, and someone who believes in, in, in inclusivity. The crown prince is a dynamo. I mean, he is a, a powerhouse CEO. He's a great leader. Uh, he inspires everybody. And now you got all the young Saudis coming home because they, they see an extremely bright future. And that that's particularly true of a lot of the young Saudi women who are highly educated abroad. Now, tourism is very interesting because if you look at some of the other Gulf states and what they've accomplished, the Emirates is a very good example they deserve a lot of credit. If you look at Qatar, if you look at Bahrain, they're very small areas. It's it would be the equivalency of America of uh, you know of a Delaware or or in Europe of a, a Liechtenstein or something like that. But Saudi Arabia is quite a large country. It's five and a half times the size of Texas, so it has very varied topography. But if you don't open it up to tourism then you allow old stereotypes to perpetuate that it's all, you know, that it's uh, uh, deserts and camels. Um, when you have lush valleys with beautiful rivers and snow up north and you got six UNESCO World Heritage Sites that are just one more beautiful uh, than the next. The other thing, which is very important, which uh, the custodian and the crown prince know, is that we trust our society. We know that... Our people are fundamentally generous, warm, and kind-hearted and welcoming. But that's not a perception that's known all around the world. So let's open it up. And then there's always the, uh, the, the geoeconomic factors, and that is that Saudi Arabia, its principal earnings have been because of petroleum. So right now, we're lucky. We're the custodian of the two holy mosques pre-COVID. We had 16 million people that came for pilgrimages. This is a a very important thing with 1.9 billion uh, Muslims. We're now putting master plans in place on the reconfigurations of the two holy cities of Mecca and Medina to attract 30 million people. This is good because people will come. So we're going to take uh, the GDP of tourism from 3% to 10% by 2030. Uh, tourism will create several million jobs. Dereyer itself will create 55,000 jobs. So, not only does it have tremendous economic benefits, not only does it employ the part of your society that's the least educated because you can come in immediately into the workforce, but you'll reverse stubborn stereotypes, you'll expose a rich and beautiful, not rich financially, rich in terms of topography country, and you'll get a warm welcome from a very, very generous society. So, I think this is win, win, win. And credit has to be given to uh, King Salman and, uh, in particular, the crown prince to have that vision to open up the kingdom. You know, you mentioned the young people here. And with each passing visit, when I see young people, I'm amazed at how excited they are about the vision and where Saudi's going. They're happy. They're running around, men and women, 
So I'm happy that I have my son Noah here. He came on this trip with me. I love when I bring some of my kids from time to time. My son Noah has a question. Hi, uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. So I'm curious how, after having been in Saudi twice now, I've seen such rich history and culture, but also I'm seeing the amazing things that you're building here and in other of the mega projects. Can you speak about how you walk the line between maintaining the history and culture and educating tourists and Saudi citizens about it, but also building towards the future? Yes, it's, it's very important. And um, this is where the influence of the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Salman, is very significant. Um, when you look at culture and heritage, if you look at 194 countries and 44 dependencies, if you look at the 238 countries in the world, they all have a unique flavor or character to them in terms of the way the societies express themselves. Music, dancing, food, costuming, right? This, this has to be celebrated. Now, there's a saying, you've heard the saying, we may not share the same the theology, we may not share the same ideology, but we all share the same biology. So the one thing that's great about humanity is that we share a common humanity, but we get distracted by geopolitical forces and protection of national interest and stuff like that. But the king feels strongly, and his biggest advocate is the crown prince who's only 36 years old, that the national identity and the source of the greatest pride is in the 300-year modern history of Saudi. Now, it's a 90-year modern history because uh, on September 23rd, the kingdom will celebrate its 90th uh, uh, recognition of the kingdom, right? But we just, the, the king just floated and just passed uh, a new national holiday. Every February 22nd is called Founding Day because today is 300 years old. Today is the birthplace of the kingdom. It's the ancestral home of Al Saud. It's the birthplace of the Arabian Peninsula. It's the center of culture and heritage, thanks to His Highness Prince Badr, who got the Arab League to, to proclaim this. So history doesn't have to be boring if it's steeped in national pride and a sense of identity. Now, many countries are proud of that. I mean, if you look at Spain, very rich national identity, Italy, very rich national identity, the French. Uh, America has a very rich national identity. Many countries. So th that's, a, we believe going forward, it's critical to celebrate culture and heritage, especially in a country that's rich with that, and all the young, modern, hipper things. And we have several uh, giga projects that are, are meant for pop culture, They're meant to entertain a young, vibrant society. The Crown Prince believes that my people should be healthy. My people should be well-educated. My people should be happy. But in order for them to be happy, they have to have rich family lives. They, 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 they have to be entertained. There's nothing wrong with singing and dancing and going on rides. And We just finished Riyadh season. We have Jeddah season now. By the millions, everybody's having a good time. No problem. This is, this is a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And when you say history doesn't have to be boring, yesterday we had the amazing opportunity to be in Al-Ula and see a beautiful theater where the likes of Andre Bocelli have performed, but next to it and in the background, uh, the graves of the Nabataeans. So I think you're doing a great job with walking that well, line. Well, thank you very much. So you talk about the Crown Prince's vision for happy lives, and I've seen the master planning here. It seems to me that this would be almost like a paradise. You have places to work, trees, 
broad streets, you know, it, it was a canvas, a blank canvas they were able to design. How has this been received by Saudis, and do you envision foreigners both living here and touring here? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and, and um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, historical mis, uh, miscomprehensions, misperceptions. But the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia prior to 1979 was a very moderate country, uh, a very rich society uh, in terms of its own identity, uh, a very, um, uh, a lot of solidarity. People were happy in the kingdom. Now, at the time, they weren't as educated as other countries, uh, as healthy as other countries, because it was a rather poor country prior to the acknowledgement of uh, the, the finding of oil. And then 1979, there were very seismic geopolitical events that, that changed the whole region. Um, but now it's time to come out of that posture and to go back to the positivity. Now, what was very interesting during the G20, which Saudi did a brilliant job on its presidency in 2020, both empathetically with the king on his protocols on the handling of COVID, which most of the kingdom's protocols were picked up by other countries, especially in terms of empathy. Uh, Saudi Arabia was one of the role models in the world for handling COVID. But one of the things that happened is that many journalists came and uh, one of the more common questions was, what's your favorite thing, you being non-Saudi, what's your favorite thing about living in the kingdom at this time? And I said, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the G20, powerful countries, um, they're going through a cycle now of polarization where there's really, really strong opinions on both sides but where compromise has, been, has gone away, uh, considerations, certain considerations have gone away. You don't see that here. So thanks to its young population, uh, over 70% under the age of 35, you have an optimism. The society is optimistic. It's positive. So when you have a young society that's highly educated with a young dynamic leader that's positive and optimistic, all the receptors are open and then when you have the resources where you can invest in quality of life, air quality, uh, water, uh, you know, infrastructure, uh, moving towards alternate uh, forms of energy, electric cars, wind, solar power, this allows the planning of the kingdom, because the crown prince at 36, he's not thinking, what am I going to do at 37, 38? He's thinking, what am I going to do in 2030, 2040, 2050? to make sure that there's a better quality of life for the entire society. So there's a, there's a very, very uh, predominance now of positivity and optimism, and I'm looking forward to that returning to the other G20 countries. When I first uh, came to the kingdom in 2017, I was nervous, right? I knew what I knew about the kingdom from the media. I knew how little I knew about the kingdom. But since then, I've just been amazed at the warmth. The hospitality is legendary. Uh, I have many friends now in the kingdom. Do you think non-Saudis uh, will come here and feel welcome? Will they understand today's Saudi Arabia through projects like yours and other projects that are being built? Yeah, um, and that's where you have to praise this young generation, uh, Noah's generation, because they're more fearless. They're not stuck on stereotypes. Uh, uh, they make their own opinions, but they're going to go for themselves. They're not going to 
uh, it, with all due respect, they're not going to listen to their grandfather or their father. They'll listen, but they're going to go make up their own opinion. No, I listen to your right, father. Right, right. So what happens now is that I'm not worried about the kingdom when it comes to anybody in the age group under 30 because they're fearless travelers. They will go and meet like-minded people. They will make up their own opinion, and if they had a good time, they'll say it. If there was a bump or two, they'll say it. But then they'll say, okay, uh, were they fair? Uh, did they treat the environment right? Did they treat people right? Uh, what, what, what is fair? And, and they're, they're very good advocates, the young ones. Now, the older ones, 40, 50, that are affluent travelers that have a lot of money, what they want now is time, because time is a luxury, it's precious. They want authenticity, very, very important now. They, they don't really want to go see the fake things. They want to see where things started. So there's going to be great interest in Saudi Arabia, uh, like there was with Cuba uh, from the Americans uh, when, when uh, Cuba started opening up. What is Cuba? What is Saudi Arabia? People are going to want to see. Now, that's a more difficult marketplace because you have to overcome stereotypical things that have been planted in one's mind by just years and, and decades of bad press, right, or of bad imaging. So I, it's going to take time to change. But the best thing is that that market, when they come, they're astonished. And they all say the same thing. We had no idea. But that's going to take a little bit more time to induce and entice and welcome people to come and see for themselves. I should add, as an observant Jew, I feel thoroughly comfortable here. When I sit down with Saudis and they understand that I'm Jewish, I have special dietary requirements, I only get respect, I only get warmth. And in fact, on the way out, I'm going to take a Sharpie and I'm going to mark out where I want to put two or three kosher restaurants right. down the road in this well, incredible project. Well, you see, the project. thing about kosher restaurants, which is very interesting, is that that cooking style, that cooking method has an integrity and a purity and an authenticity to it, which is the same thing in Islam with halal cooking. It's, you, you know, you may call something kosher, you may call something halal, but these two cuisines or these two cooking methods on, a, on, a, on the cuisines are based on hygienic principles of food preparation and the same way uh, someone in Islam has dietary restrictions is no, is no different than, than, than uh, uh, our Jewish friends or no different than our friends that are of the Hindu faith that have dietary restrictions. If you go to India, there's a lot of different restrictions. So what happens is that this is a good thing because the kingdom will welcome that. Will, you know, these, these type of preparation methods. So th this, is, uh, this is very easy for us to look at. No, I'll make a note. If we open up a restaurant, it should be called Jerry's. It feels like a deli. I'm not it sure. Does feel it. Like a, it does feel like a jelly, uh, Jerry. That's right. And I can have the... But if you do, if you do that, then you just have to make sure that the 11-layer uh, that the 11, uh, 11 layer chocolate cake has uh, got my name on it. <laughs> so one other misconception people have is about the topography here. People think it's just desert, flat desert. Clearly, that's not the case. Enlighten my listeners about the topography of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, as we said earlier, you know, when you're talking about a country that's five and a half times the size of Texas, but up north, there's beautiful, beautiful canyons, and we have a region, uh, Tabuk, and, 
you know, where you have snow. I mean, I was up there earlier this year up to my ankles in snow, and you say, Saudi Arabia snow. Now, the Egyptians have done a very good job uh, from a tourism point of view uh, uh, for several decades now in Sharm el-Sheikh, and, and, uh, but, you know, they, I, I forget, but the Egyptians controlled something like 9 or 11% of the Red Sea. Well, Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia has 45% of the Red Sea, almost the entire eastern seaboard of the, of the Red Sea. Well, that Red Sea is so big and so beautiful, one of the most beautiful coral reefs, fully intact because it hasn't been, environmentally, it hasn't been overrun. So in the Red Sea here, not only do you have the crystal blue turquoise waters of the Bahamas, but you've got topography of what the Maldives would look like or what Seychelles would look like. So it's very beautiful. Now, the other thing about the Crown Prince, which is not really portrayed in the media, is he is an enormously strict environmentalist. You bring up sustainability to him, he'll look at you like, sustainability? What's the alternative to sustainability? You must be sustainable. You know, a lot of people don't know this. Again, it's an image thing. But Saudi Arabia in the last few years has been one of the leading investors in the world in artificial intelligence and robotics, not for defense purposes, for quality of life. How do we affect air quality? How do we affect water? How do we reverse osmosis? Uh, Saudi Arabia now, the crown prince has said, by 2030 will be the leader, if not one of the leaders in wind and solar technology. The kingdom is just committed. We're building right now in Tabuk, $43 billion plant on green hydrogen. But in the central, you got culture and heritage. You got Dedea, the mud city, fabulous. You got Asir, beautiful Swiss. It's, it's the Swiss Alps, if you will, of Saudi Arabia. Are you kidding? You've got al the largest palm grove in the world. You've got the empty quarter with vast, beautiful uh, dunes. So there's going to be so much to do when you come. Now, in the next two to three years, we have to put a G10, a G20 tourism infrastructure in because we're going to be attracting 100 million people to come visit by 2030. So we got to get that, we got to get that going. And is the infrastructure sort of keeping in line with the progress of the projects themselves? Yeah, they're running in parallel, right? So there's going to be a little bit of tension. I use that word, uh, I use that word positively, because what, t- what the Singaporeans did brilliantly, and we admire them greatly in 60 years, especially with the vision of Lee Kuan Yew, what our brothers and sisters in the Emirates did in 30 years uh, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, brilliant work. Uh, we, we attempt to, uh, to get that level of um, finish in 15 years. So, so, uh, so you and your team are working pretty hard, I guess. Well, it's, uh, you know, when a crown prince, we say here, when a crown prince works an 80-hour week, you work an 81-hour week. What was one of your biggest challenges to create this site? Um, you know, the biggest challenge is an unusual one. Um, we're very lucky because we had very good vision from the crown prince, and he's articulate. We had the resources, and he said to us, go out and get the best and brightest. Go out. You can use the finest consultants, finest designers, finest architects. So you would think, finest engineers, you would think that that would be the hard part. It, it, it wasn't the hard part. The hard part, as CEO, 
is the fact that you have very young, unbelievably talented young Saudis, but in their career arcs, in certain disciplines, they're only up to the sergeant or lieutenant level, uh, not in a military thing, but like they're, they're, they're managers and directors, but they don't have 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Now, Saudi Arabia in engineering, in medicine, in military, in chemicals, in oil and petroleum, in accounting, has world-class executives, world-class CEOs, world-class banking. But in, in disciplines that it never had before, marketing, tourism, entertainment, uh, it, it never was here. So now, while the Saudis are learning that, which in my view will take about five years, you have to import the talent. So uh, to quote the great Casey Stengel of uh, New York, the baseball manager, uh, Casey is the hard part finding the talent. No, it's getting everybody to play together. The most difficult thing now is to build a team that's positive and homogenous that can operate under this level of compression. Because we're not worried about uh, anybody being mad you're a month late or two months late, even though we're not. We just feel a tremendous sense not to let anybody down because the promise of the kingdom is so great. So Dedea, we say there's only one Dedea. Uh, we want to be the shining example in the incubation of talent for the kingdom to keep up with the needs of the crown prince and what his administrations will be in the years to come. We, we deeply believe in serving our community of Dedea. 14% of our staff are from Dedea. But we want to make uh, Dedea one of the great gathering places. So the hard part is getting everybody to coalesce into one team. So speaking of hard parts, I'm going to ask you a hard question. It's kind of like asking a parent who their favorite child is. There isn't, right? right. But what's your favorite part about this project? Um... There's so many uh, favorite parts, but I think I have a tied for first. Number one is it's unbelievably fun to be around such young, exciting, positive people, the young Saudis. They're fabulous people. They're good human beings, but they believe in their future. This is very exciting when, when you, you're now at a point where you're not the youngest guy in a room. So that's great. The second thing is to use a metaphor of today and the bricks of mud. To think that you could contribute as an individual, as a brick in the wall of a historic time in the kingdom and tap into the vision of a king and a crown prince, win their trust as a non-Saudi, to contribute to that vision is a very, very humbling, very exciting thing. So um, minus uh, the long days and minus the 80-hour weeks and having to take good care of yourself uh, physically, um, I think the future is very bright. I think the future is very bright for the region. I think Saudi's entry into the tourism business doesn't just benefit Saudi. It will increase the length of stay in the region. So where the Egyptians have done an amazing job, one of the great culture heritage city, uh, c culture heritage countries, you know, you look at Jordan, 
Israel, uh, all the all the GCC. There's a lot of cultural and heritage in the region. It's going to benefit the whole region that Saudi's a powerhouse because you'll get more air carry, you'll get more tour operation, and then instead of people coming to the region for three or four days, they'll start coming for a seven seven to ten day itinerary, and I I think that benefits everybody. I agree. I, I'm very bullish on the region, and there's so much to do here, and I think it's just going to become a go-to destination again and again and again because it's so varied. Um, so you speak about the young generation. We've spoken about them a lot, and I've been incredibly impressed with their optimism and their energy. So I'm going to let my son Noah ask the last question since uh, he, before he grabs the mic away, <laughs> he's so excited about it. He is, you know, he represents uh, also an American future full of optimism and hope, hope for peace, hope for just everything exciting. What would your message be to listeners of the Diplomat podcast about the kingdom and why they should come visit? Yes, um, the kingdom is rich in cultural and heritage. It's a spectacularly beautiful country with a lot to do, a lot of fun, with warm, gracious, welcoming people. And come and see and learn for yourself. Make up your own minds. Um, And particularly geared to the younger people. Um, this is our world now, and all young people, they have, to be, they have to be proud of the city they were raised. They certainly, I would hope, be proud of the country that they were raised in. They should be proud of their faith and proud of their family and proud of their community. But never before genera- generationally has there been an obligation to take care of the planet the way it is now. And we have to all be ambassadors to preserve each and respect each country's different individual personality, right? So the, preser- the, the preservation of culture and heritage is imperative. So I would say come visit, but if you do come to the kingdom, there's only one today, you have to come visit today. There's a lot of great places here, but you have to come to today. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thanks for the time. Thanks for sharing this incredible project with us. And thanks for allowing Noah to join as well. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Noah. Great to be with you, especially someone I greatly admire. And I'm going on record on this podcast to say that, that your wonderful son will eclipse the accomplishments of the father. <laughs> God willing. Or as they say here, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you. A fascinating, exciting, interesting conversation with Jerry Inzarello, the Group Chief Executive Officer of Daria Gate Development Authority. I took a long tour of the project before we did the podcast, and really it's sort of breathtaking. We saw multiple models of what the project is already and what it's going to become over the coming years. I got to drive around with Jerry ahead of time with my son Noah. We saw this place of essentially barren land and rock being transformed by the hour practically. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast episode with Jerry and Zarello. Let me remind you that my book is coming out July 19th. I'm so excited and to the extent you want to learn more about the Middle East, Israel, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Abraham Accords, this is the time to listen. The Middle East is playing more and more of a prominent role in the world. For so many good things, it's a complicated region. I encourage you to go to Amazon and pre-order the book. It's called In the Path of Abraham. 
or you can visit inthepathofabraham.com and order it from there. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.